Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between for one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Looking good, Bill Bant. Feeling good, Jason. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1983 comedy Trading Places, produced and distributed by Paramount Pictures. It stars Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, and Jamie Lee Curtis. Directed by John Landis, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 56 minutes. It was nominated for one Oscar, Best Music, Original Song Score, and its Adaption or Best Adaption Score by Elmer Bernstein. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Eddie Murphy established himself as a comedy star of the highest magnitude as Billy Ray Valentine, a hustler from the ghetto. His fellow Saturday Night Live alumnus, Dan Aykroyd, also stars as Louis Winthorpe III, a wealthy investment executive at Duke Brothers, a Wall Street firm. The fun starts when the rich and greedy Duke Brothers, Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy, wager a bet on whether a born loser, like Valentine, could become as successful as Winthorpe if put in the proper environment. And if a prig like Winthorpe were to lose it all, would he turn to a life of crime? The Dukes arrange for that to happen. Valentine becomes the golden boy of the commodities market and Winthorpe finds himself out in the streets. The two pawns meet, compare notes, figure out who's doing this to them, and Valentine and Winthorpe set in motion some hilarious revenge plans of their own. Trading Places that was what's on the box. Yeah. So what are our earliest memories of Trading Places? Yes. From 1983, way back when. I was only, gosh, nine years old. I did not see this movie in the theaters. But first and foremost, of course, my earliest memory revolves around the one and only Eddie Murphy. No question, Beverly Hills Cop is when he really caught my attention in late 84 and through 85. But then I would go back to watch his two earlier films, 48 Hours and Trading Places, on cable. And I was probably catching some old Saturday Night Live reruns in between. But now that I think of it, man, you know, Eddie Murphy really was a consistent cable presence or VHS watch for me throughout the mid to late 80s. I mean, it makes sense. His handful of 80s films were just that rewatchable. So next, I have to say, earliest memory. Pork bellies. That's it. Simple as that. Pork bellies. I don't know anything about them. I don't know what it, it even meant at the time. Really, It just was it just sounded funny to me as a kid. Uh, following that, I have to say my exposure to Dan Aykroyd at this point was most likely. Yeah, Saturday Night Live reruns once again. But then, of course, the following year in 84, I definitely saw Ghostbusters and then would go back to see Trading Places on cable or VHS after that. So similar a little bit to uh, my exposure with Eddie Murphy. So thus, I have seen Trading Places a few times, of course, and although I don't remember much regarding the initial viewing experience as to where I was or who I was with, man, I remember really enjoying the concept of this movie. Murphy being hilarious as the boisterous street beggar Billy Ray Valentine and Aykroyd as the wealthy commodities broker Louis Winthorpe III and just having fun watching them as they are manipulated into switching roles by the evil brothers Duke, Randolph, and Mortimer. 
the owners of the Duke and Duke Commodities brokerage firm in Philadelphia. The older Duke brothers, they take in Murphy to be groomed as the refined commodities broker, basically taking the position that Dan Aykroyd once held as they simultaneously frame Aykroyd for company theft. And we see his fall from grace, his fall from his position, losing his status, money, lifestyle, his fiance in the process. All of this as a result of this bet between the Duke brothers to see whether or not one's environment will change a person or will that person stay the same because of their good or bad heredity. So I also remember this triumphant and always fun Elmer Bernstein score. The music is fantastic in this. Yeah, gosh, I was so young when I saw this finally. Yeah, still, yeah, still young at probably 10, 11. So I can't talk about this without mentioning. Oh, I know people are probably waiting for this. Jamie Lee Curtis and yes, her boobs. So let's get that out of the way. Audience, beloved listeners, if you don't know, for many of us young bucks in the 80s, this was a quintessential moment. Had we seen boobs on screen before? Of course we had. These are the 80s movies. We've seen plenty of boobs in this very movie before we even see Jamie Lee Curtis's boobs. But we hadn't seen her boobs like this. I mean, it... it we were to rank the best scenes revealing a beautiful woman's breasts from 80s movies, which we are not going to do here. We don't want to w- indulge too much in the objectification of women, but this one's up there, even with Phoebe Cates and Fast Times. Let's just say the scene with Jamie Lee hit us in a certain way as young men. She's beautiful. She's got a great look, not to mention she's got legs so long. If the ground wasn't there, they'd go on forever. Okay, I'm indulging in the obje- <laughs> objectification just a little bit. Yeah, early memory, definitely the old guys, Randolph and Mortimer Duke. I always can picture them in my mind. I mean, they're borderline caricatures of these crusty old rich white dudes, and they're funny. It would help, of course, later on when they make a cameo in Coming to America in 1988, and I'm sure we'll touch upon that again later on. But yeah, my memories, my earliest memories are mainly of these general characters and liking the concept overall, and watching two strangers become friends. Enemies becoming friends, friends becoming enemies. In this case, more enemies becoming friends, teaming up to take down the uppity, pretentious, rich, old white guys. And that's it for me, man. It's, uh, yeah, I just remember it being a feel-good movie, a feel-good holiday movie at that. What are your earliest memories, Bill Bant? Yeah, I certainly remember the poster of this movie with uh, Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. I don't know much how much I knew about Eddie Murphy at the time. Um, I think the first time I saw this, my parents were watching this on cable, and it was one of those I was kind of in and out of the room watching a little bit here and there. Definitely caught the Jamie Lee Curtis topless scene, which my parents tried to quickly shoot me out, but by then it was too late. I remember not understanding what they were talking about with all the commodities, the pork bellies, the orange juice, gold, and all that. So the whole third act was totally over my head. I don't understand how they successfully bankrupted the dukes and i don't even think i knew what bankruptcy was either so i wasn't even sure what happened at the end how they got away with what they did after what happened to them being switched traded places and Ackroyd's character becoming a bum on the streets while uh, billy valentine eddie murphy becomes successful i probably knew a little more about Ackroyd certainly than Murphy, just because of some of the, his other movies that we've discussed, Neighbors, my dad watching that on cable, even Dr. Detroit, mm. seeing that one. So I kind of knew who Aykroyd was. I probably didn't watch this on my own until it was certainly before Coming to America came out, because when they do that joke where we see uh, more 
Randolph and Mortimer get the money and say they're back. I definitely knew what that joke was all about. So outside of that, that's about it. I just kind of remember catching a little bit on cable. And then eventually, once I knew who Murphy and Aykroyd were, especially Murphy, to go back and check out his earlier work. Couldn't agree more with you upon the point of confusion with the commodities exchange and everything to do with that. Because, yeah, that third act just went right over my head. And that's just kind of the point I'm going to make later on here is that as a child watching this, I just didn't care. I didn't care about it anyway. It didn't matter to me. All that mattered to me was the comedy and whether or not the good guys were going to get one over on the bad guys. And just watching the goofiness unfold within the set pieces. Now, watching it as an adult, spoiler alert, I still really, really enjoy this movie. Uh, You ready to get into some initial thoughts, Bill Bant? Yeah, go for it. What do you got? All right. Let's start with our director, John Landis. And let's give you a little bit of his 80s snapshot. Uh, He was the director of the Blues Brothers, an American werewolf in London trading places here. Twilight Zone, the movie, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, Amazon Women on the Moon, and Coming to America. Not a bad resume. Moving on to our big star, Eddie Murphy, and his 80s snapshot. Now, we did cover him a bit when we did our Beverly Hills Cop podcast, so I won't go too much into it, but I'll list his films real quick, just so you know. He, of course, did 48 Hours Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, The Golden Child, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and Coming to America. All hilarious. And then Harlem Nights as well. Not saying that. That's not hilarious, but that's just not one of my personal highlights, but not a bad movie. And we, of course, know him from the blockbuster, The Nutty Professor and its sequel. And we know him as the voice of the donkey from the Shrek films. And he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Dreamgirls. Moving on to Dan Aykroyd. I do appreciate the spelling of his last name. I always see it on paper and I want to say Aykroyd because it's spelled A-Y-K-R-O-Y-D. But it is Aykroyd, his 80s snapshot, the Blues Brothers, Neighbors, which we did, as Bill mentioned here on this podcast, uh, Dr. Detroit, Trading Places, Twilight Zone, the movie. Love his cameo in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Of course, the all-time classic Ghostbusters, then Spies Like Us with Chevy Chase. He does Dragnet, The Couch Trip, The Great Outdoors, Caddyshack 2, My Stepmother's an Alien, Ghostbusters 2, and Driving Miss Daisy. That's a lot. He had a prolific 80s, man. And then... After that, he I have to mention this. He was in our friend Marwan's favorite movie of all time in the universe, Sneakers. He follows that up with Coneheads and Tommy Boy and on and on and on. More initial thoughts. Again, I'm going to touch on Elmer Bernstein's soundtrack. They do use the marriage of Figaro in this soundtrack. And it's just fun. It's flamboyant. It's over the top. It's perfect for this comedy. It has that classical element to it. Even maybe a little classiness in it as well. So yeah, it's just, it's a perfect match for this type of film and genre. Man, Eddie Murphy is just so damn charming. I can't say it enough. It's just like I commented when we did our Beverly Hills Cop episode, he has also such a genuine quality, especially in these younger performances. We all love his performative side because he's just downright hilarious. He's one of the funniest movie stars we've ever had. And Anytime he's doing his characters from Street Beggar to Nunga or Nenge Mboko, we can't help but laugh. But when he takes it down a bit, when he takes it down a notch, he can be so natural. 
and his delivery can be really heartfelt. It's it's in his face. It's in his eyes. I, I love those moments, even in this comedy. So I do like Aykroyd's performance in this versus what I've complained about before in our discussion of Neighbors and the Great Outdoors, where I feel he's doing more of a caricature. Here, yes, he is a little performative because that is the genre. That is the tone of the film. It's a, it's a very over-the-top comedy, but He's not overdoing it quite as much. He's just nailing this character of a, a wealthy, well-to-do commodities broker who's been pampered and is used to a certain lifestyle. So I thought he was pretty good in this. Oh, wait, he's great in this. Dan Eckert's great. What am I saying? Hey, initial thought. I would have liked more Jamie Lee Curtis in this. She's adorable. We talked about, yes, the topless scene briefly, but you know, I have to say right before that reveal, when we are introduced to her as a uh, prostitute, she's wearing a red hair wig and it's curly red hair. And when she takes it off, it's really a moment. It's a revelatory moment at just how gorgeous Jamie Lee Curtis is, especially with kind of what I, I'm calling kind of, I guess you could say iconic short hair cut. It's just the perfect fit for her, which is interesting. I'm going to step on a little trivia here. You know, Jamie Lee had long hair when she was cast, and it was costume designer Deborah Nadulman Landis that suggested cutting her hair shorter for the film, which I think was a great call. So beyond her look, she's just so sweet. She's cute. She's very natural. And she exudes such a warmth in this that I really appreciated on this revisit. And she's funny. Jamie Lee, great actress. Got to mention Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici, of course. These guys playing the Duke brothers are way over the top in this, but they know exactly what kind of movie they are in. They're old school classic actors. They know how to play the comedy, which is the most important part. Everybody knows what kind of movie they are in in this, and that's really important. Got to mention the supporting cast as an initial thought. Denholm Elliott as Coleman the Butler. Outstanding. We often think of him, or I do. I think of him as Brody from the Indiana Jones films. Man, he kills this part in this movie as the butler, Coleman. I love seeing Bill Cobb as a bartender in a brief scene in this. We get an appearance by Jim Belushi toward the end of the movie. We get Frank Oz as a corrupt cop. We get Al Franken as a baggage handler. And I completely forgot that we get the great Paul Gleason as this independent Lindhurst security agent, Clarence Beeks, who is way over the top aggressive in this movie. <laughs> and... Uh, I love his intro, which is basically knocking over a pedestrian on the sidewalk, and it's just great. I want to mention or stress Denholm Elliott. He was my standout upon this revisit. He's just great. It was a surprise standout for me. He's funny. He's sympathetic. He makes the most of his facial expressions to convey disgust, to delight, everything in between. You're just kind of rooting for him in the background. He's always there, whether in the foreground or background. And spoiler alert, when... He's on the island beach at the end, no longer in a position of servitude. I was like, hell yeah, Coleman, you're done with that job and you're moving up in the world. I was just really thrilled for Coleman in this movie at the end. Here's my minor criticism. The movie takes an adequate amount of time in setting up the role reversal, the trading places, if you will, establishing character, putting the pieces in the right place. I'm all, all for that, but it does take its time, whether it be getting Valentine off the street or framing Winthorpe, or grooming Valentine into the role of a wealthy broker, and making sure Winthorpe's fall from grace is complete. It just, 
it takes a bit of time. And before you know it, we're an hour into the movie. And then it feels as though it skips over a couple chapters here and there, especially with Murphy's maturation as the broker, some relationship development, a few plot points. They skip over this stuff in favor of focusing on the set pieces, the uh, screwball comedy, and just watching the good guys get their revenge on the bad guys. And finally, again, we talked about the world of commodities being a bit confusing. So those are my minor criticism. But the simple fact is, and this is where I'll end, is that almost all of my criticisms just don't matter that much with this type of comedy. We saw this as a trend a lot in the 80s. These types of 80s comedies, a lot of them starring previous SNL stars. It starts with a fun, clever concept or backdrop, and I do feel this movie is pretty well written. But then it just relies on the strength of the performances, despite a flimsy story, maybe overall. And because these performances are that good, it's just funny and entertaining. We feel good in the end, and that's all that matters. So whether it be Caddyshack, Stripes, Three Amigos, or The Great Outdoors, that's what worked in the 80s. And as we'll talk about in the research, it's a throwback to these farcical screwball comedies. We go with the plot, its holes, its lack of development, because we like these actors. And we we, we want to see them be ridiculous within a fun setup. That's it. What are your initial thoughts, Bill Band? Okay, for me, from it, my initial thoughts watching this again, I didn't realize how horrible the Duke brothers are. I mean, this is all framed in a comedy. So the plot is the Duke brothers place a bet on whether success in life is in the blood or a product of good environment. So the movie makes a case for circumstances being more important than genes. So they take their best employee, Winthorpe, Dan Aykroyd, and make him a gun-toting maniac while they pick a street hustler off the street, Billy Ray Valentine, Eddie Murphy, and make him a pretty good employee. And then when all this happens, we find out they do it for a measly dollar. They ruin someone's life to the point where they almost (laughs) commit suicide twice. And they almost tried to make it funny, which suicide is not, I would say in the funniest of circumstances. We've, I mean, we've discussed other movies with suicide. um, Heather's being one of them when they kind of make light of it, but when you really think about it, I mean, they ruined this guy's life to the point where he almost kills himself. That is horrible. Yeah. And then they turn around with Billy Ray, who they've actually made a pretty good commodities broker, and they decide that they don't want him around because he's black mm-hmm. and the racist on top of it, too. And they'd rather put him on the streets and get rid of two good employees than have a successful business. That's really shocking when you think about it, who these two people are and what extremes they go to ruin people's lives just because they've had a silver spoon in their mouth the whole time and just don't understand the impact of what they do. In that sense, it's kind of scary. Cast is amazing. Man, they've really hit it out of the park. And when we get into facts and trivia, some of the people that they were going to put in this, I'm surprised about who they were going to, but I'm glad they did not. Cast really works well. I still do have an issue with the third act of the movie. I mean, their whole plot of getting the crop report from Beaks. Right. It just doesn't work for me 100%. And then even now trying to figure out what their whole ploy was with the commodities after they... I I really had to look it up and figure out what exactly they did in order to ruin the Dukes and then for them to make all their money. And I'll try to explain at the end of the podcast so people can understand also, because even watching it then, it still didn't make sense to me. But now that I've researched and got it, now I'm like, oh, okay, 
and even do the research too. Eddie Murphy had no idea what they were doing. Even John Landis wasn't hundred percent sure what they were doing. So I, I didn't feel bad that I didn't understand what it was that they were doing, but you love the character so much. And like you said, you just want the Dukes to get comeuppance. You don't care. But at this point, because we're doing the podcast, I really wanted to know what it was that they actually did. I really enjoyed the movie. I don't know. It wasn't like laugh out loud funny for me, which I was kind of surprised. Okay. Um, yeah. It was a lot of big smiles, but no, there was no like guffaw moments or laugh out loud moments. Yeah. Jamie Curtis. Oh my God. Um, she is gorgeous in this. And I totally forgot. She does. She does two topless scenes in this. Mm. And I think the first one is more notorious, but I think she looks way better in the second one. Yeah, I agree with you. I think she could have had a bigger role. The hooker with the heart of gold. God, prostitutes in Philadelphia. I didn't realize how gorgeous they were between her and Nancy Allen from <laughs> Blowout. But anyway, yeah, good call on Coleman. Yeah, he definitely has a bigger role in this movie than you would expect. That was really tough for him to know what was going on and then have to turn on Winthorpe like that. I think that really aided him. But then the fact he was able to actually establish a pretty good relationship with Billy Ray, that was kind of impressive, too. Exactly. His open-mindedness, I appreciated it. Yeah, Paul Gleason, I totally forgot he was in it. Man, he plays the prick role so well (laughs) and uh, does it once again. This and Breakfast Club, what a one-two punch for him. No doubt. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, he's just too good at it. So you just keep casting him in that role. But outside of that, yeah, overall, I certainly enjoyed the movie, but I certainly saw a lot more flaws than I have in past viewings of this movie. I'm glad you said it because this is a revered film and with good reason, but it is not without its flaws. And thank you for being honest about that, as always, and just pointing those out. And I agree with you. The fact that, yes, the Duke brothers, Randolph and Mortimer, are awful in this, and it does shine through quite clearly and obviously this film as we'll touch on has some very specific gay slurs and racial slurs that are not good they're inappropriate and they're awful to everyone and i agree that you know just touching upon coleman we don't want to make this podcast about the butler in this film but it's interesting that he has his own arc within the film because he's let in on this bet that the Duke brothers make and how they're going to manipulate Valentine and Winthorpe. And Coleman has to go with it for a while, but then develops a bit, like you said, this relationship with Billy Ray Valentine and sees what happens to his previous boss, Winthorpe and and such. But you're just like, oh, this guy's been through the ringer too. He's being manipulated by and used by the Duke brothers. I mean, he is their servant. Or yeah. whomever's servant throughout. He's like, the, he's an indentured servant and he doesn't like the way things are going. He doesn't agree with it, but he ha- he's being paid by these people and it's his livelihood. And then he sees a way out himself in the end too. Yeah. I think Coleman has one of the best lines in the movie when Billy Ray's going to go to the first day of the job. And he's like, what if I can't do it? And he turns around and says, just be yourself. They can't take that away from you. That's it. And I think that's really Really, and what you the movie see, is about when you think about it. I wholeheartedly agree. And you can see it on Coleman's face that as if though he's a, in a way, a beaten man, maybe he feels that he's had to fight for his own self-worth because uh, of the way he's been treated. I mean, it's, it is his job and I'm sure he's getting paid well, but 
he knows what it feels like to maybe uh yeah because the dukes could destroy him too if you didn't want to go with the the plot yeah anyway i don't want to dwell on that too much but i the last comment yeah that confusing stuff with the the commodities and the brokerage and such yeah i'm glad that's funny because it sounds like we did the same preparation i also looked at three different websites explaining the ending of trading places you can find plenty of it out there and i also copied and pasted an entire explanation so i will let you take care of that and maybe i'll interject when i feel appropriate but it'll be fun to try to explain it just to to make heads or tails of it all right we'll save that for the end but in the meantime let's go into favorite scenes or moments what are some of our favorite scenes and moments from trading places all right this first one i'm calling well the bet presents itself so we know a little bit up to this point or we have explained a little bit of the setup but i'd like to do this for our listeners in case for any reason you haven't seen this film So far up to this scene I'm about to describe, the film establishes our protagonists quite distinctly as we watch Lewis Winthorpe III wake up for his day and prepare for his work day as the managing director of the Duke & Duke Commodities brokerage firm in Philadelphia. We see his butler, Coleman, attending to him, and we see that Winthorpe is well-to-do, upper-class, wealthy, quite used to the finer things in life. And then we're introduced to the Duke brothers themselves, the elderly Randolph and Mortimer. They apparently live together, which makes sense in this giant mansion. They probably never see each other during the day. Anyway, they're preparing for their day as the co-CEOs of Duke and Duke, and also extremely wealthy, of course, living in this lavish mansion in the outer country area of outside of Philadelphia. So when they arrive at their firm in the city, we are then introduced to Billy Ray Valentine, an African-American boisterous street beggar posing as a Vietnam veteran who's lost his legs and he's wearing this his tattered winter garb and he's wheeling himself around on this small furniture dolly. And uh, as the Duke brothers come uh, to their firm, they arrive in their limo and they exit their vehicle. Valentine immediately rolls up and asks them for some money and or food. It is turned away abruptly. It's pretty funny. And a brief moment here to say that this is the Christmas season, that's when this is mainly taking place and there is snow on the ground. And anyway, we know now that Winthorpe is the talented managing director and talented broker, having just made the Dukes hundreds of thousands of dollars on the sale of pork bellies. And he goes to see the Dukes after they arrive and hand them the payroll checks to have them sign them. And he notices that one of the checks is going to a Clarence Beeks, who doesn't appear to be an employee. However, the Dukes gloss it over and excuse him. Now, what's important here is that Mortimer Duke comments on how Winthorpe has done well for them and comes from good stock or good breeding. And Randolph disagrees, stating that it's the environment he was brought up in here that makes him the man who he has become or is. So we cut back to Billy Ray Valentine, who's on the street wheeling around on his dolly. And he literally rolls up to this attractive woman tucking on, tucking on her dress and hitting on her. And then two Philly PD cops notice him from a distance and approach him. They question whether or not he was really in Vietnam. They say, you know, we've had some complaints about con men pretending to be blind and crippled. And Billy Ray says, oh, I'd love to help you, man, but I ain't seen nothing since I stepped on that landmine in Viet Cong back in 72. And they were like, you were in Nam? He's like, yeah, I was in uh, Sang Bang, Dang Gong. I was all over the place, basically a lot of places. I, I was in, with the Green Berets, Special Unit Battalions, Commando Airborne Tactics, Special Tactics uh, Unit Battalion. It was real hush-hush. I was Agent Orange. Yeah, that was my name, Agent Orange, Special Agent Orange. That was me. 
And so this is Eddie Murphy just going off and it's hilarious. It's just funny. He's just riffing, probably improving here. And basically our Philly PD cops, they lift him up off the dolly, not buying what he's selling. And you see then, of course, Billy Ray's legs extend beneath him and he stands up and he starts looking around because he was acting as if he was blind. And he says, I can see, I can see, I, I have legs. Oh shit, look at this man, I can walk. Jesus, praise Jesus. And he goes on to tell the cops how much he appreciates them and just starts walking away. And he walks down the block from the cops, sees a squad car pull out from an alley and then decides to turn right back around and go the, back toward the other cops. And that's when, at the exact same time, Lewis Winthorpe is coming out of the Duke and Duke private club and he's carrying the payroll in his briefcase and Valentine runs right into him. So Winthorpe drops the briefcase. Valentine tries to hand the briefcase back to him, but Winthorpe immediately accuses him of robbing him because of the way he looks. And Valentine, in a panic and avoiding the cops, takes the briefcase and runs into the Duke and Duke club and the cops give chase along with Winthorpe. Now it turns into this whole farcical scene. The music is great. Valentine runs into the club with all the white men in their nice suits, enjoying their newspapers and cocktails. And meanwhile, more cops pull up outside to give chase. And Valentine's running around this giant table with a Christmas tree on it. And everyone, including Winthorpe, is running in circles. And eventually Valentine ditches the briefcase, jumps on the table over it, and then crawls under it and is finally cornered. And this is the classic shot you'll see in the trailer or it's often referenced in clips because we have valentine lying face up on the ground and all the cops draw their guns and point them at valentine they put all their guns in his face and he just looks up at them and says is there a problem officers now randolph and mortimer duke happen to be there at the club of course and they've been watching this whole scene unfold in front of them and they watch the cops cuff valentine and winthorpe Dan Aykroyd accuses him of attempting to steal the payroll and wants to press charges. The Duke brothers then get an idea. The light bulb goes off. They ask Valentine if he's from a broken home. Randolph himself determines that Valentine is a product of poor environment, that there's nothing wrong with him and that he can prove it. And Mortimer disagrees, says because he's black, he probably was stealing since he was a baby. Ugh, not good. But Randolph gets the idea if they took Valentine and put him in the right surroundings, he would thrive and become just as successful as Winthorpe. And Mortimer says, are you talking about a wager? And Randolph nods, yes. Then Mortimer says, you must think that if Winthorpe were to lose his job, and would, uh, would he then turn to a life of crime? And Randolph says, well, he wouldn't just have to lose his job. They'd have to destroy his life. And they agree to do so. And Mortimer says, how much do you want to bet? Randolph says, the usual amount. They shake hands and we're off. So this is the setup, but also it's just a really fun scene. It's just watching Eddie Murphy do his thing. He's riffing. And I love that when he's just lying his ass off to the cops and making up words, but then he realizes he can see, he can walk and it's just his exuberance. And whether or not he's ad-libbing or not, he goes off script. He's just fun to watch. He's so electric. And then the farcical aspect when he runs into the building, running around the table and that classic shot of all the guns pointing at him. But this is then the impetus behind the bet that sets this whole course of action within the movie. So it's fun. It's fun. A lot of action. Cool. Definitely a good scene. Definitely a good setup for the movie that, yeah, they're going to ruin someone's life and uh, make someone's life a whole lot better. But then 
eventually try to ruin that life. So yeah, they're not good people. Um, so that takes me into my first favorite scene. And it is when Billy Ray gets the house. So after Billy Ray is arrested and he's in jail, the Dukes come by and they actually drop the charges and pick up Billy Ray in front of the police station. And they basically tell him that um, they're going to help rehabilitate him. They're going to give him a job. They're going to offer him 80000 a year. They're giving him a house. And um, they're going to have him be part of the company. And of course, you know, Billy Ray is very suspect about it and is just going to go along just to see what actually is happening. So the Dukes end up taking Billy Ray to Dan Aykroyd's house, Winthrop's house, and they give the house to Billy Ray because in the meantime, they're going to ruin Aykroyd's life and he's going to end up living on the street and Billy Ray is going to take Lewis's house and uh, Coleman's going to be his butler and they'll teach him how to be a commodities broker and because this is all just part of the bet. So Billy Ray's in the house and of course he does not believe that they're getting this house and uh, he's like, oh, this, yeah, this really beautiful house. And in the meantime, while he's looking at the house, he's literally stealing stuff from the house but he's making it so obvious that the duke see what is going on and they keep trying to explain to him billy ray you're only stealing from yourself this is your house and he's like oh yeah yeah my yeah my, my house my house and he goes over and he sees like a box of cigars and he points out he's like you know what i really love about this house is is those curtains hoping that they'll turn and then he takes the cigars and stuffs them in his jacket and the dukes just realize he's not getting what they're trying to explain to him. They're like, this is your house. Everything in here is your house. And Billy Ray opens up a cabinet and the TV's in there. He's like, and you're telling me this is my TV. He's like, yes, this is your TV. And the stereo in here, the stereo is mine. He's like, yes, this is your stereo. Billy Ray walks around the house a little bit more and he sees it. Uh, we'll say it's a vase because it's expensive, not a vase, a vase. And he, and he picks it up and he's, and he's like, so you're telling me this is, this is mine. And he's like throwing it back and forth between his hands. And, and they're like, yes, that is yours. And while he's talking to them, he accidentally drops the, the vase and it breaks. And so Billy's like, hey, sorry about that. And Randolph's like, it's perfectly all right, William. It is your vase. So Billy just thinks it's a joke. He's like, oh, so that was cheap, right? That was, that was some kind of fake, right? And Randolph comes back with, uh, I believe we paid $35,000 for that. But if I remember correctly, we valued it to the insurance company at 50000 So you see, Mortimer, William has already made us $15,000. So start laughing about it that he's already made money accidentally. And at that point, Billy Ray just looks around the rest of the house and is like, do you want me to break something else? No! Knowing that everything in that house is very expensive but i thought it was a pretty funny scene uh just eddie murphy riffing just the circumstances he just doesn't realize that he's in at that moment and his skepticism which uh i think he has every right to be skeptical about it being picked up off the streets and all of a sudden your life's going to be turned around just like that makes a lot of sense so i think he plays it off great and in the whole time too they knew it's a bet and randolph i think is just a little excited because he thinks that he's going to win this bet over Mortimer that they can actually pull this off. Absolutely. This was my second favorite scene and you laid it out perfectly. It is extremely entertaining because 
Yeah, we just get to see Billy Ray Valentine just in the beginnings of his acclamation. And it's all shock. He's in shock. He's just not accepting it quite yet and very skeptical, as you mentioned. And there is some nice subtlety in there when, uh, it, whether it's Randolph or Mortimer, that purposefully call him William as if they're yes. grooming him already to, you understand, that's the more appropriate name for you now. That is your name. And that's how you will say your name kind of thing. But the fact that throughout the conversation within that living room that Eddie Murphy is stealing all those items while in midst of conversation, just kind of half-assedly trying to distract them as if they wouldn't notice he was pocketing these items, and that he grabs the entire box of the cigars, the, the actual box itself, and shoves it into his coat and tries to get them to look the other way by saying, those are nice curtains, those are real nice. And they glare. And then Mortimer just walks over to him and pulls the box out of his coat. And in between that, the fact that when he, they bring him into this home, which was previously Winthorpe's home, he is then basically given Coleman. He is assigned a butler, and it's hard for him to even understand that this person is going to attend to his needs. And Coleman takes him to get cleaned up, and they put Billy Ray in a jacuzzi. And Billy Ray doesn't even know what a jacuzzi is necessarily, or they call it a whirlpool, actually. And then once uh, Coleman explains it to him and turns on the whirlpool, Murphy has a great line where he says, hey, bubbles, man. Say, man, when I was growing up, if we wanted a jacuzzi, we had to fart in the tub. Love that line. <laughs> just always kind of smile or giggle at that one because he's just a fish out of water. Billy Ray Valentine, that is. And breaking the vase at the end. And great scene. I wrote it down. Love it. Awesome. Uh, what do you got for your third then? Yeah, absolutely. So we may also share our third scene. I'm not sure, but uh, if we do, you can obviously add on this one. Where am I here? I'm just calling the train swap. Uh, there's some funny stuff in this. Now, I may have a little complaint mixed in with this scene, but it will be saved for later. So this is a lot of fun. So at this point in the film, Valentine and Winthorpe have uncovered the Duke's bet and or plan. And they see that the security agent that the Duke brothers have hired, named Clarence Beeks, played by Paul Gleason, is an agent that they've been paying off. And this particular agent happens to work for an independent security firm called Lindhurst, this security firm that Beeks works for. And Beeks has received the next year's highly anticipated crop report in Washington, D.C. The Duke brothers... Their whole long game here and plan is to get their hands on this crop report illegally, of course, before it actually is released to the public. So now Valentine is in a position at the firm to take phone calls, of course, and he decides now this is part of the plan he's formed with Winthorpe that he's going to intercept the calls that the Dukes are taking. And he waits and then finally intercepts a call from Beeks to the Dukes and is aware that Beeks is going to deliver this crop report to the Dukes before it's officially released, and that the Dukes are going to pay handsomely for this report. And we also know that it is now New Year's Eve. So we've jumped ahead a few days here in time. We know that Valentine and Winthorpe have become fast friends, along with Coleman and Ophelia. That is Jamie Lee Curtis's character's name, Ophelia. They've all teamed up here to get one over on the Duke brothers, and they've decided to intercept security agent Beaks 
on the train from DC to New York City to the commodities exchange in order to get the crop report and replace it with a fake. In essence, taking Beeks's suitcase and replacing his crop report with a fake. So it gets a little confusing in between, but the point is we get some good uh, farcical screwball comedy in here. We see Beeks board the train to New York and he finds uh, his compartment room to make himself comfortable for the train ride. And in walks Billy Ray Valentine dressed up in traditional African like tribal dress and exclaiming, Merry New Year! And attempting a Native African affectation or accent while swatting himself with a brush. And I actually looked this up. It's called a fly whisk to keep the flies away, even though clearly there's no flies on a train. And it's great. Eddie Murphy looks hilarious and he's putting on this voice. And he says, I am Nanga Mbuko or Mboko. I'm saying it wrong, but it's hilarious. He says, I'm an exchange student from Cameroon. And he sits down across from Beaks and starts singing and then all of a sudden goes, it's jerky time. You want some beef jerky? And he offers Beeks some jerky. And Beeks, of course, is already getting annoyed. Who's this guy that just walked in? This crazy guy and sitting across from me now. And he's just going off. And then in walks Coleman, the butler, disguised as an Irish priest, drinking whiskey. And there's some funny lines exchanged back and forth between everyone. And all of a sudden the train starts moving and Eddie Murphy is like, we are moving, we are moving. It's just, I love all of this stuff. And if that weren't enough, then enters Inga from Sweden, which of course is Ophelia in disguise. And she's wearing the wrong costume for a Swedish woman. She's wearing Lederhosen, which is more German or Austrian. And she's got this rucksack on her back and she distracts Beeks with her uh, bosom uh, momentarily in order for Valentine and this is part of the whole plan here is that why they're dressing up in costumes is for a distraction in order for Billy Ray Valentine to switch the briefcases to get the briefcase that has the crop report in it. And he leaves the room temporarily and goes gives to give that case to Winthorpe, who's waiting in a restroom on the train, who is then going to put the fake copy into Beeks' suitcase. Then they all go back to the room. And of course, now, just to put the cherry on top here, Winthorpe comes in disguised as a Jamaican and pretends to know Valentine's character, Mbuko. It's just a step too far, and Beeks realizes this is all a ploy because he, he actually, out of the corner of his eye, sees that they move the briefcases around, and he pulls a gun on them and then takes them to the back car, the uh, luggage car. And then uh, let's just say, I'm going to gloss over what happens here. I'm going to skip over it because this is kind of in my complaints because it just goes way over the top. But eventually Beeks gets knocked out and our characters all in costume here, our heroes, get a hold of the crop report to go then have this meeting with the Duke brothers undercover and give the Duke brothers the fake crop report. So hijinks ensue. It's the train ride is my last favorite scene. And uh, yeah, again, I tend to, yes, I am focusing on Eddie Murphy here because whenever he's doing his characters, his shtick. His, and shtick isn't the right word for it, it's just better than shtick. You can't keep your eyes off of him when he's doing the voices and he's singing and there's some great lines in there. So lots of fun. See, I just, I do not like that scene at all, to be honest. I disagree. Okay. That's where, that's where I think the movie itself starts literally coming off the rails because here you sure. bring in four stereotypes. You have Ackroyd and Blackface. And I don't under, even understand why does, why does he even have to come in that compartment? 
Oh, that's a miss. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Beeks definitely knows who Winthorpe is because he's had dealings with him face to face. Yeah. He's had dealings with Ophelia face to face. So I'm pretty sure he would know who those two right away. I don't know if he knows Coleman. So Coleman being there makes some sense. And maybe even Billy Ray. Right. I don't understand why all four of them had to come into that compartment. <laughs> it's and once you make ridiculous. the switch, right. Okay, he leaves, switches it out. Just leave again and grab the, the other case and, and switch it. And I don't understand why everyone has to play such characters. It kind of loses it for me a little bit during that scene. That's just me, though. Well, I agree partially and only partially because I think it's obviously meant to be over the top. I don't mind the caricatures. Yes, I mean, you can make the stereotype comment for sure, but it's clearly meant to be silly. Might not, the the blackface definitely might not quite, you know, really appreciate. And it's definitely not necessary for Aykroyd's character as, you know, in the blackface as the Jamaican to come in because that's just, that was a mistake by them. That's just right. dumb. Why would he go in there? Why not just, have, like you said, have Valentine return to the room with the, the briefcase with the fake report in it? I mean, there's there's moments. Yeah. So it's, I don't know, there's some silliness in it that I just went with, I guess. What I will say, why I'm saying I partially agree with you, is there is a whole aspect to this that, because the scene I described is intercut with this New Year's Eve festivity going on within the train in a different train car, and that's when we're introduced to Jim Belushi's character, who is dressed up as a gorilla. And in the luggage car, we know that the luggage handlers have put a an actual cage with a real gorilla in it in the luggage car. And that all plays into this whole thing, which really lends itself to ridiculousness and can take you out. And took me that aspect of it took me out of it, where now the suspension of disbelief, even though it's supposed to be this farcical comedy has gone a step too far. Yeah, I think it would have worked for me more if they were members of that party. So they're purposely wearing costumes and not trying to pretend that they're the people that they're in those costumes. Just like people in the party. That's a good point. Dress, yeah. And just play it off more that way instead of trying to pretend like, yeah, I'm actually a stereotypical drunken priest. Or even though I'm supposed to be a Swedish girl, and maybe just make them party goers that kind of accidentally come into the compartment instead. Good point. That to me maybe would have made it work a little bit better. Just be a sure. whole part of the whole uh, train atmosphere. Also, I agree with is that of course Beaks, played by Paul Gleason, would not go for it at all. He, they are immediately recognizable. He has met a couple of them before, as you stated. But what then does work for me is the fact that he doesn't buy it. Like he busts them. He's like, yeah, okay, I know who you are. But it takes too long for him to figure it out. But still, at least I gave him credit for that. The fact that he does figure it out. Like, yeah, he sees them try to swap the cases back. And then he's like, oh, no, I know who you guys are. Right. So I was like, okay, at least he did uh, kind of uncover this at the end. But I hear what you're saying. I respect your opinion wholeheartedly. Eddie Murphy is funny in that scene. I, I certainly give him that. And then even with... Jamie Lee Curtis coming in and Coleman being like, no, you can't play a Swede. Right. You're supposed to be a German. You're wearing Lederhosen. Yeah. He's trying to, he's trying to let her know. It's funny, but it doesn't, yeah, it just doesn't work for the story for me. All right. What's your next favorite scene or moment? Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to go back a little bit. It's the party that Billy Ray throws at his new house. So once uh, Billy Ray realizes that the house is his, uh, 
Coleman is his servant. He's going to uh, share the wealth or brag about his new riches. And he goes to a bar that I guess um, he's not too welcome at because maybe he owes money. He pays the bartender off like, here, here's the money that I owe and buy champagne for everyone. And everyone's like, whoa, Billy Ray, you've changed a lot. And he's like, yeah, I'm rich. And he happens to run into two of the people that uh, he, when he was in jail, he was with and he was bragging that he was rich there. And of course, these gentlemen didn't believe him. And they were pretty big and could kick the shit out of uh, Billy Ray, probably with their pinky. And Billy Ray's like, no, see, everything I told you is the truth. My my limo's outside. And sure enough, the gentlemen go out there and see Coleman there with the limo. The next thing you know, everybody's back at Billy Ray's place and they're throwing a big party. And at first, Billy Ray's pretty excited that, you know, he's Mr. Popular. But then he quickly realizes this party was a mistake and these people are just using him because he has money. And now he's trying to keep the house in pretty decent shape. And, you know, Coleman's there working the party too, and he's never seen anything like this before. And he's kind of shocked by it, but he's also interested in it and seems to uh, be enjoying himself. You know, he's stealing a couple of drinks. Some of the ladies are uh, taking their tops off and dancing topless. And Coleman's certainly never seen uh, Winthorpe throw a party like this before so uh he's along for the ride and then billy ray realizes some of the guests are missing and they go upstairs and he goes upstairs and there's a woman up there and she's ready to have sex with him and billy's raised like just put your clothes on and get out of here and uh he goes back downstairs and, and really sees they're they're messing up his uh new home and he's not happy about it so he uh kicks everyone out and you really see that Billy Ray's actually coming around that maybe what the Dukes offered him is true and, and he should uh, respect this new lifestyle and give it a chance and see what happens. And I think he really appreciates even with Coleman helping him out with the party. And then he was going to help clean up and Coleman's like, no, go to bed. You got a big day tomorrow. I'll, I'll take care of it. And I think he has some respect for Coleman too. It really shows the turn of Billy Ray as a new person himself, that this bet in a sense is actually good. Good for him. I'm so glad that you brought this up. It is a fun scene, but I have a few honorable mentions when it comes to scenes and moments. And one of those moments is exactly what you said at the very end of this scene is that there's a very quiet moment between Valentine and Coleman that is important. And it lends itself to what you mentioned or called out earlier when Coleman says to him, just be yourself, sir. They can't take that away from you. And in this particular moment after the party, Valentine realizes, or it says so much, as much to Coleman and saying, those weren't my friends, meaning they were just using him and they disrespected this property. And he has kind of this appreciation now for the position he is in and has a respect for this home and the things that he's been given. And you see his genuineness come out that it's not this environment has changed him in a bad way. He really is a good person. And Coleman in that moment says, I'll clean it up, sees that. You see it in Denholm Elliott's performance here when he sees the goodness within Valentine and Valentine realizes this appreciation for Coleman in return and says, genuinely just says, all right, man, you know, thank you. He actually says, thank you. He thanks Coleman. And Coleman feels respected in the moment, and that's the maturation of their relationship. And it's kind of cool. And again, this standout in this movie, something I, I had not picked up on before. So I appreciated that a lot. So it is a worthwhile scene. So I'm glad you called it out. And then last for me, it's just a, a moment because it's just a memorable moment for me. And it's with Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd's hit rock bottom. Winthorpe's hit rock bottom yeah. at this point. <laughs> yeah. 
I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. So Winthorpe ends up on a bus and he's in there and he's wearing this tattered Santa Claus outfit. And it's just all, it almost looks like Santa's gone down like 15 chimneys. Yeah. Like he's been dragged through the gutter. He's so gross. So gross. (laughs) He's on the bus and he's sitting across from uh, this woman and daughter. And like I said, he's hit rock bottom. And he's hungry and he pulls out this huge slice of it's either like beef or the salmon. salmon. Yeah, salmon. Yeah. And he literally eats it through the beard of the Santa Claus. And it's so disgusting. But to me, it's always so memorable him doing that because it's not a small piece. It's almost the size of his forearm. That he gets it and he's pulling it out of the Santa Claus outfit and it's and he's pulling it through his beard and he's trying to bite it and he's biting half the salmon and half the dirty beard at the same time. It's so gross. And you hear him like tearing at it. That scene just always gets me. It's just like, wow, oh, that is rough. That was another moment because I have a couple other honorable mentions here. And that was definitely one of them. It is absolutely disgusting. I was fortunate enough to listen to uh, another podcast that Dan Aykroyd uh, guested on just recently and he talked about that scene and how it he couldn't specifically recall but assumed there was some ad-libbing there that he they kind of came up with it on the spot but i am actually watching it in the background right now as we talk about it oh funny because you look at him and you can smell him through the screen yes you're like he must smell awful he's been drinking i mean he's disgustingly drunk and he then pulls out that salmon and it's all entangled in his beard so he's eating hair and salmon and you hear it like you said it's audible and you start imagining what it must taste like and or smell like it's just gross fantastic but uh, a couple other mentions for me real quick I'm going to call out the scene with uh, Billy Valentine in the beginning when he uh, goes to jail after the scene I described in the very beginning, being busted wrongly for going after the payroll that Winthorpe had. But he's in jail now, and he's just going off explaining to his cellmates how he used his court of blood karate technique to take out 10 cops after stealing the payroll from Winthorpe just to get some street cred with his fellow cellmates. And he imitates his karate technique like Bruce Lee I freaking love it. I laughed out loud when he does it because it's nuanced. He does the yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the end, he does that kind of thing. And he's shaking his mouth. It's just really perfect. It's really funny. And he's like, yeah, you do that. And a quart of blood will drop out of a man's body. It's great. The other moment I wanted to call out is when the Duke brothers are grooming Valentine to become this broker. And they are trying to explain what commodities are to him. They bring him in. And they have some food items laid out on the table and they explain to him that the commodities are agricultural products and that they broker deals between people that want to buy or sell these commodities on the market. And uh, I believe it's Randolph that's explaining to Valentine, well, one of these products is you know, flour, one is bacon, or excuse me, one of them is pork bellies, which is used to make bacon, you know, like bacon in a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. And he's just... It's almost patronized, like he's condescending to Valentine, just overly explain that moment, like bacon on a bacon and lettuce tomato sandwich. And Eddie Murphy breaks the fourth wall and looks right into the camera like, are you effing kidding me? (laughs) Like, I wouldn't know that. I love that moment. That to me was a laugh out loud moment. I forgot about it. I wasn't expecting it. Good stuff. That's all I got. All right. So let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? 
Because although this movie is delicious, it does have Santa Claus costume holes. Yes, and if it doesn't have those holes, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. So Jason, what do you have for Swiss cheese or complaints? Well, I have to start off with the most obvious, which I mentioned already. The overt gay slurs and racist remarks are blatant and uncool. Let's just put it that way. Uh, inappropriate to the utmost. Uh, they use the N-word in this, and for the gay slur, Murphy uses the F-word a couple times, and it's exclamatory, and we don't talk like that, and it's uh, disrespectful uh, on the highest level. But it was a different time, not making an excuse, but that's a fact, and unfortunately, some of that language was common in these movies. So that's a problem with the movie. Yeah, certainly agree with that one. Jamie Lee Curtis is a little underused, and when she takes... Winthorpe in when Ophelia her character takes Winthorpe in and takes care of him it's wonderful and I wanted to see that relationship blossom a little bit more they they obviously become romantically involved at some point but she has drawn a line in the beginning saying that if you want to be with me it costs money but then later on they seem to have really warmed up to each other and I feel as though they skipped over a couple moments in that relationship up to that point because they're kissing at the end, and he has no longer engaged to Penelope, whom he was supposed to marry at the beginning of the movie. So, yeah, wanted more from that relationship, just solely even just to see more of Jamie Lee Curtis's performance, because she lights up the screen, and she's a good component to this team alongside Coleman and Valentine Winthorpe. So uh, what do you what do you got for some complaints or a whole, maybe? Yeah, uh, certainly a complaint was we have the Penelope character and uh, a lot of Lewis's friends. And we focus on them a lot during the first half. And and this is even this is even what makes the Dukes horrible too, is so Winthorpe, I believe, is engaged to Penelope. And they destroy his life to the extent that they're no longer together. They break up this engagement. And Penelope's their niece, I believe. Mm-hmm. Her granddaughter. Right. It was like, man, how bad is this? And Penelope's kind of trying to stand by him in the beginning, but as more and more things happen. She breaks away and runs into the arms of another of Winthorpe's friends. And Winthorpe at one point confronts them all at a club and says, look, I'm not guilty of this. I'm going to prove that I'm innocent and hopefully I have your support. And they all turn their back on him. Okay, fine. You know, that scene makes sense. But then that's it. You don't see Penelope anymore and you don't see any of the friends anymore. What happened to them? That plot point just got dropped. I would have liked to see that somehow come around that maybe Lewis somehow gets back at them. Or now that Lewis has Ophelia, he's like, sorry, Penelope, you blew it. Something like that. A thousand percent. And and Penelope's pretty hot too. Nailed it. She's gorgeous. Yeah. Lewis, uh, he's got really good taste in women. I'll give him that. No doubt about it. So that leans into my next complaint because I agree. I felt the first half of the film was a little bloated in the setup. They're really putting some focus on these side characters like Penelope and the other friends of Lewis's, and some of it doesn't come back into play as much. And then the second half is a little underdeveloped. So first half bloated, second half a little underdeveloped because, yeah, you just kind of hit the nail on the head there with the Penelope character. But also then, you know, there's a scene in the first half with Beeks framing Winthorpe for having stolen some cash from a coat in the coat room. And it takes forever for like they're all in this giant boardroom, which is massive. And the aesthetics are great. And the establishment of that is great. Just the scene. But then it takes too long for Beaks to come down and then kind of bust 
Winthorpe with the cash and it's like, okay, we, we know that he's going to be framed. We see what's happening here. We get it. And then in the second half, I was kind of expecting a little bit more of the human element here, the humanity. You know, we get it. It is a little bit under the radar in this movie. We have moments like we mentioned between Valentine and Coleman. But yeah, it's just like there's a commentary here about socioeconomic status and how people are treating one another. And the we know the Dukes are awful. But just how do these people feel now that they've revealed that this bet is happening? How is now Valentine and Winthorpe going to team up? But how do they see each other now that they are in opposite positions? They've been walking a mile in each other's shoes. And how do they relate to one another? And how do they feel about being having been treated a certain way? And how do they connect, find that commonality, and then join forces versus will they just team up for the sake of getting revenge? And it's just as simple as that. There's not much uh, further digging into the humanity of it, if that makes sense. So I would have liked to seen a little bit more of that in the, the second half is just like, what did our characters learn here? So that being said, you can make the opposite argument that, well, this is just supposed to be a silly over the top comedy that we don't need to go that deep. It's just a setup. That's just the background. So anyway. That's it. And then finally, I really don't have much more than the fact that there's this, the gorilla stuff that happens with the hijinks is really doesn't make any sense because I'll, I'll skip to the chase here is that our security agent is knocked out in the luggage car of the train and they put him in Jim Belushi's gorilla costume and throw him in the cage with the actual live gorilla, which would just never happen. He'd be killed probably instantly. And the live gorilla looks is kind of fake. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen, but then with Paul Gleason inside the gorilla costume, it's clearly a man inside of a costume that everybody else doesn't seem to realize. And it's over the top. It's very goofy. It's extremely silly to the point that it takes you out of it. So the gorilla stuff and then, yeah. And then the ending with the commodities. So those are my complaints. Yeah, I totally agree. The All the stuff with the gorilla thing, that annoying the crap out of me. How do you not see that? I, I get it. The bags guys were a little drunk, but you saw that there was one. Now all of a sudden there's two and you can't figure that out. You're not that stupid. Right. So that bothered me a little bit. Yeah. We understand that the handlers are drunk and high or whatever that one of them right. being Al Franken and they're goofy. And so they are kind of dunces that don't get it or a little dense. But then once they get to the end and they drop off the cage and the other guys don't recognize that there's a person in there and like, oh, there's two gorillas now. It's okay. Fine. Yeah, no, too much. Yeah, anyway, keep I, going. Yeah, I think Beeks has come up and says it's a little too much because they yeah. infer that <laughs> yeah. Beeks is getting raped by the gorilla, which is not right. a good thing either. I thought it was a little over top too how Billy Ray finds out about the bet. I mean, the circumstances sure. in which it happens makes sense. There's at one point where Winthorpe plants the drugs and Billy Ray throws most of them away, but there's some joints in there and he, he pockets them for himself and that's fine. He goes to smoke one in the bathroom and while he's smoking it, in comes the Dukes. So he's got to hide in one of the stalls. But then the Dukes literally have to spell out the bet to one another. Like they don't understand what the bet is. I think it would have been more interesting if they talked about, hey, I won the bet and they give them the dollar. And then they talk about how they're going to get rid of Billy Ray. So then Billy Ray's got to figure out like, wait, what is going on? Instead of it all being spelled out like, hey, we did this bet where we took a, a guy off the streets and made him prosper. They know that. Mm -hmm. The, audience, the audience knows that. Why do you have to spell it out again? I thought that was a little ridiculous. 
it would have been more interesting if you try to have to figure out what it was like i'm doing really well for them and now they want to get rid of me already what the hell is this all about and then he kind of puts everything together maybe that's how he even gets lewis back on board and that they can work this out and figure it out and then all right let's get back to the dukes and let's bankrupt them because of what they're trying to do what they did to us instead of just being spelled out that's just the way i kind of saw it i felt this exact same way that scene in the bathroom it's a good setup but it's an exposition dump that's after the fact. Right. We've already seen the setup. We know what happened. We don't need an explanation again. It's tough. I give credit to Bellamy and Amici for having to deliver the expository dialogue because it's it's hard to deliver those lines that are literally just stating the bet over again. It's hard. So that's a tough moment because it's like, oh, they're just doing this for the sake of having Valentine hear it. But we all know this already. Anyway, right. The big reveal is the amount of the bet that it was just for a dollar. The dollar. Holy crap. All this for a freaking dollar. That's crazy. Absolutely. But the fact that I I need to hear what the bet's all about again, I'm like, no, we've already kind of heard it throughout the whole first hour of the movie. Uh, You don't need to tell us again. Did you have anything else for complaints or holes? No, just what I talked about earlier is that they end up playing suicide for laughs that Linthorpe's hit rock bottom and he literally tries to kill himself with a gun, points it to the temple of his head, is about to blow his brains out and the gun doesn't go off and then he throws the gun and then you hear the gun go off and then he's still so distraught about it. He goes back to Ophelia's house and tries to kill himself with pills. Uh, that's not funny to me. Yeah, it goes a little dark. Yeah, a little too dark. It was really dark. Yeah. I mean, I get it hits rock bottom, but I wish they could have done something else about that. I think that's a good call now that you you stress that point. And for those characters to have gone to those lengths and then in the second half of the film, from that point on, not really talk about what happened. Instead, oh, we're just going to get revenge. That's where I felt there was a little lack of development. It's like, okay, like this is there's still going to be plenty of comedy. It's just we got to we got to let's talk about our feelings. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that's too much for this comedy. Anyway, all right. Are we moving on? Moving on to, hey, it's that actor. And in this uh, segment, uh, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Who do we choose this week? This week, our, hey, it's that actor is Giancarlo Esposito. Giancarlo Esposito is cellmate number two in that jail sequence I was describing just moments ago with Eddie Murphy as Billy Ray Valentine. The guy next to Murphy who's standing up against the bars, he has one line and he says, "Uh, but you told me last night that you cut the dude. Well, that's a very young Giancarlo Esposito. And here's some notables from his 80s filmography. He was in Taps Trading Places, of course, and he played the role of Bumpy Hood in The Cotton Club. He was in Desperately Seeking Susan. And of course, we must mention he was in three episodes of Miami Vice from 1984 to 1985. He was in a bunch of other things. Maximum Overdrive, School Days, Do the Right Thing. Moving on from the 80s, uh, he was in one of my favorites, as I've mentioned before, The King of New York, also starring Paul Calderon, another Hey, It's That Actor of ours. I like to mention Mo Better Blues, Harley Davidson, The Marlboro Man, Malcolm X, 22 episodes of Homicide Life on the Street and skipping ahead to 2009, he is probably most famously known for his role as Gus Fring in 26 episodes of the show Breaking Bad. Spoiler alert, one of the best death scenes ever. Just awesome. 
He was then on 42 episodes of Revolution, 14 episodes of Once Upon a Time, and 38 episodes of Better Call Saul, reprising his role as Gus Fring from Breaking Bad. Gosh, I could go on and on and on. And then most recently, he played the role of Moff Gideon in the popular Star Wars TV show, The Mandalorian, and Stan Edgar on the popular Amazon show, The Boys. This guy's done a lot of work, and he is big time and well-deserved. little background on him. He was born in Copenhagen, Denmark, to an Italian carpenter, stagehand, father from Naples, Italy, and an African-American opera singer, mother from Alabama. His parents, working in Europe at the time of his birth, settled in Manhattan by the time he was six, and that's where he grew up. A little bit of trivia, he was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for television in Hollywood, California, on April 26, 2014. For a while in New York City, he was a roommate of Lawrence Fishburne and Giancarlo Esposito. Still looking great, still doing it at age 65. He is our, hey, it's that actor. Yeah, I was certainly surprised to see him in that jail scene. And he only looks like 10 years older now. It's like, damn, he's, he's got it's some good ridiculous. genes. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, granted, he's only 65, 65 years young, but he started when he was a baby, like on Broadway, like he's doing little parts as a kid and and yeah, has aged beautifully. Yes, man. I don't know what he's taking. All right, move on to facts and trivia. Where's some facts and trivia we have about trading places? In the early 1980s, writer Timothy Harris often played tennis against two wealthy but frugal brothers who regularly engaged in a competitive rivalry and betting. Following one session, Harris returned home exasperated with the pair's conflict and concluded that they were awful people. The situation gave him the idea for two brothers betting over nature versus nurture in terms of human ability. He and his writing partner, Weingrad, developed the idea as a project to star Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. When they were unable to participate, Landis, director John Landis, cast Aykroyd, with whom he had worked previously, and a young but increasingly popular Murphy in his second feature film role. Yeah, that was a big surprise when I saw this was originally supposed to be a Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor vehicle. As much as I love the two of them and their movies, I don't think it would have worked with those two. Mm. I don't see Gene Wilder doing the Winthorpe character. It would have been different. Pryor would have been fine, but then I almost feel like he would have been too old. Uh, That's what I was going to say as well, but it would not have been the same to be expected. I don't want to watch a Gene Wilder movie and see him that reserved. If anything, he probably would have played it more comedically. I mean, he would have added a lot more comedy to that uppity part, which would have then lessened probably the polarization, the polar opposites of the characters. Yeah. Different movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think certainly it's, different movie. It was cast correctly. Agreed. So principal photography began on December 13th, 1982. The first 15 days of filming were spent in Philadelphia. Filming locations in Philadelphia included townhouses in Center City that served as the Winthorpe home exterior and the Philadelphia Mint, which is now the Community College of Philadelphia, which served as the police station's exterior. The exterior and lobby of the Wells Fargo building served as the respective exterior and lobby of Duke and Duke. And they also shot part of the film in front of Independence Hall in downtown Philadelphia. Ooh. I actually forgot this was shot in Philadelphia. Yeah, right? Shame on me. <laughs> no, I think it's all right, Bill Bant. Let's see, what else do I have here? In 2010, 
as part of the Wall Street Transparency and Accountability Act, which was to regulate financial markets, a rule was included which barred anyone from using secret inside information to corner markets, similar to what the Duke brothers tried to do in the movie. Since the movie inspired this rule, it has since become known as the Eddie Murphy Rule. I love that. I know reading up on that was so crazy that you could do that beforehand. Wow. Right? Insider <laughs> information. But a like, movie what? needed to realize, oh, yeah, we probably oh. should not do that. We should make yeah, a, that, a rule against that. Probably no bueno. Wow. What an influence. Don Amici's strong religious convictions made him uncomfortable with swearing. This proved to be a problem for the scene at the end of the movie where he had a shout out, fuck him to a group of Wall Street executives. When he did act out the scene, it had to be done in one take because Amici refused to do a second one. And of course, there's another scene in the movie where he uses the N-word and it was the same thing. He was only going to do one take and they were going to have to capture that. And then he was very apologetic to Murphy about having to say that. And Murphy was like, no, it's okay. It's in the script. Just do it. I'm not taking any offense. Yep. So that was kind of tough. Absolutely. The story about the Duke's cornering of the orange juice market was probably inspired by the Silver Thursday market crash of March 27, 1980, when the Hunt Brothers of Texas tried to corner the silver market and subsequently failed to meet a $100 million margin call. It's a lot of money. Yes. So a poster for the fictional film, See You Next Wednesday, is prominently featured in several shots of Ophelia's apartment. See You Next Wednesday is the same fictional film that John Landis references in many of his other films, most notably as a porn film shown in London cinema in American Werewolf in London, which we also discussed. I think you talked about that, the See You right. Next Wednesday. So yes, you can see it in this movie also. I'm glad you brought it up because I did see it in the background and it was in the back of my mind and I didn't think about that. It's like, oh yeah. Now, thank you for bringing it up again. Around, let's say the one hour, eight minute mark when Valentine is in the restaurant and Winthorpe is standing outside in the rain, Valentine has asked his opinion about wheat, the commodity wheat at that moment. The entire room stops speaking and leans in to hear his advice. This is a reference to a series of 1980s commercials for the brokerage firm E.F. Hutton. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. I remember those. Oh, my goodness. We would reference those commercials all the time as kids. All the time. Same here. That's a throwback. So the number given to Dan Aykroyd, Lewis Winthorpe III, in his monk shot, 747-45058, is the same number given to John Belushi, Jake Blues, in The Blues Brothers. Aykroyd did this as a tribute to Belushi, who had died the year previous. Ah. Uh. Well, even though she was considered the scream queen in Hollywood at this point, having starred in a few horror movies, Halloween, Halloween 2, The Fog, Terror Train, and Prom Night, and even though horror movies were infamous for exploiting their female stars, Jamie Lee Curtis says she did not feel exploited in Hollywood until she began starring in mainstream movies like this one. She never had been asked to appear naked in any of the horror movies she starred in, but once she went mainstream, she had to take her top off. Yeah, that was interesting. So I love different titles for different countries. So here's a bunch for trading places. So in Latin America, uh, the translation is known as from beggar to millionaire. In German, it is known as soldiers of fortune. In Italy, an armchair for two. And in Danish, the boss and the bum. The boss and the bum. Yep. <laughs> I love that, man. Uh, I appreciate that from you always. Uh, speaking of... Overseas, ever since every year since 1997, Italian channel 
Italia One broadcasts the movie in Christmas Eve nightfall, and it regularly gets more than a 10% share. Again, on December 24th, 2021, it was the most watched show on primetime TV with a 14.6% share. It's crazy. Yeah, that is. All right, I'll just end on this fun one. This was Ralph Bellamy's 99th film and Don Amici's 49th. This was Eddie Murphy's second film. And he joked, between the three of us, we've made 150 movies. Funny. I thought that was funny. All right, so moving on to Box Office, Trading Places, which was released on June 8th, 1983, in 1,375 theaters. On an estimated budget of $15 million, it grossed $90.4 million domestically. It debuted number three at the box office behind Return of the Jedi and Octopussy, which also debuted that week in the United States. Trading Places would stay in the top 10 for another 16 weeks, placing no higher than second. The movie would be the fourth highest grossing movie in the U.S., just behind flash dance moving on to reviews when growing up in the 80s we'd watch sneak previews with gene siskel and roger ebert to hear the reviews and watch clips of upcoming movies their review of trading places was unanimous two thumbs up gene thought it was the funniest movie i'd seen so far that year and roger liked that murphy and Aykroyd were playing characters that were real and funny rotten tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 88 percent and it has an imdb rating of 7.5 so that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. So what are additional thoughts and questions we have about trading places? All right, Bill Bantz. Well, here's the big question. Heredity versus environment. Nature versus nurture. Which way do you lean? I think I would have went with Randolph on the bet and said it, it really is your environment has a big difference on how you're raised. Agreed. I think no question there are genetics at play i mean the easy answer is it's a combination of both mm -hmm. but i think environment definitely plays a larger role throughout uh, your growth there's no question it's it's where you exist it's the place you exist in and the people you're surrounded with right and the relationships you form and that's that's how you you grow and you develop ideas and opinions and it shapes who you are and your values etc i think we can look at our parents and see qualities that were passed down to us. You know, I was adopted myself, but I'm sure I have some qualities that were passed to me, but other things definitely because of where I grew up. Yeah, I certainly agree. All right. So the big plot point about what happened at the end. All right. So the film isn't about stockbrokers. It's about commodity brokers. And hopefully I can explain this and it makes sense of what happened. How, <laughs> how does Winthorpe and Valentine end up bankrupting the dukes and this is this is what i have so hopefully follow along it seems to make sense okay so the dukes receive an advanced copy of the crop report predicting rising prices for frozen orange juice which is wrong they got the wrong report so they commit to buying large quantities of frozen oj before the report becomes public thinking that there's not going to be a lot of orange juice out there. So they're going to corner the market and they're going to be able to sell it at a high price. So other traders notice that their big push of buying it high and follow their lead, which of course even causes the price of OJ orange juice to rise even more. And the buyers feel comfortable with this higher price because if the Dukes are doing it, they must know something. Okay. So Winthorpe and Valentine, who saw the real crop port, and arrange the Dukes to get the fake one, know the price of orange juice will go down once the crop report hits because there's going to be, there's nothing wrong with oranges. So there'll be plenty out there. 
So when the prices get high enough, they begin what they call short selling at the inflated price, essentially betting that the price will go down. So they're selling it to people who think the price is going to go high. So as they will later need to buy the frozen orange juice that they short sold. So when the crop report becomes public, the price plummets. And Warnthorpe and Valentine complete their short sell commitment by buying when the price reaches rock bottom, locking in huge profits from the sales. The Dukes, having committed to buy a lot of frozen orange juice at what turned out to be the highest price of the day, desperately tried to unload their uh, sales, but they can't because Winthorpe and Valentine won't buy it back from them. So to make it worse, they bought huge amounts of orange juice on margin, basically on credit, meaning they bought more frozen OJ than they can afford on the condition that they're forced to sell which is a margin called margin call, if the real money can't cover the current losses. The margin call occurs, and the New York Merchant Exchange officials demand payment from the Dukes, and since they don't have enough capital, they end up bankrupt. So does that make any sense? Wow. <laughs> I'm glad you said it relatively slowly, because it's a lot to swallow. Yeah, it's difficult. Look, I'm going to admit something here that's really embarrassing. I wasn't personally even aware of the Commodities Exchange. I am very well aware of the New York Stock Exchange, the NYSE. Growing up, of course, you're watching the ticker tape. My dad had made some investments over the years and you'd the rise and fall of stocks and bonds, etc. I even worked for a company briefly involved in finances and and that whole side of things. So Watching this movie again today and being reintroduced technically to the commodities exchange and what that means was an eye-opener and an education, and I am a dummy. So I was doing this research and then realized that the commodities exchange is mainly based on what's going to happen in the future. You're predicting future. And so that's why they call what they're buying and selling futures contracts and it's a real gamble. And then to go into terms like short selling and margin call, et cetera, and trying to figure out how that all works is really involved. And it takes some time to wrap your head around how it works and then the math of it. But yes, in the end, the Duke brothers are the ones stuck holding the bag. And it somewhat makes sense, but even you, you did. I, thank you, Bill. Thank you for going over it and explaining it. And I, I found a version that worked pretty well, but that even went into more depth. And I still don't have a full grasp on it, but we know the good guys win in the end. Right. You get a lot of money. Let me see if I can even make this in more layman's terms. Is So the crop report the Dukes get make it sound like that oranges are going to be scarce, that the Florida crops didn't do well. So they figure because of that, orange prices are going to be high. It's supply and demand. Correct. So they buy high knowing they could probably even sell it for more because there's not going to be a lot of orange juice out there. The prices will continue to go up. Correct. Yeah. Whereas Lewis and Billy Ray know that there's plenty of orange juice out there. It's going to be a low cost. So when it gets to a certain amount, they're selling away those high orange juice shares knowing that the price is going down and everyone's buying it from them because they think because the Dukes are buying it up, the crops must not be doing well. So they're going to get it at a good price too. But once the crop reports come out and then they know there's plenty of our oranges out there, they're like, wait, we spent too much on this. So they want to sell it, which right. 
Billy Ray and Lewis do at that point at the lowest point. So all that money that they paid out. So if they paid, say, $2 a share and then bought it back at 10 cents, they made a nine, $1.90 off of every share that they buy in their pocket. Whereas since the Dukes could not sell back those socks, they now have to pay that $1.90 a share that it ends at the end of the day, and they don't have enough money to cover because they basically put all their money into it, and that's why they go bankrupt. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Our financial expert, a resident podcast financial expert, Bill Band. Uh, well done. Me, I had to I had to look it up in like three different sites in order for it to make sense. And yeah, like you too, I thought it was I thought it was all going into this. I always thought it had something to do with New York Stock Exchange, also not commodities. Right, so that was new to me, also. Yeah, I, I yeah. finally understood what was going on for the first time. I was like, oh, I, okay, this makes sense now. Kind of enhances the viewing experience now for me because I, I'm sure I'll revisit this film again down the road. It's a great holiday film, but yeah. Uh, but, the, but the money that having... they use to bankroll this is Ophelia's money and Coleman's money. That's where they get the money from in order to to do that. And they had gotten money from the Dukes themselves from for handing over the crop report. Yeah. So that's that's all the yeah, money they used in order to pull this off, because if yeah, they, it's a huge they, risk. Yeah, it is. Even with them knowing how the crop report was going to turn out, it's still a huge risk. Absolutely. A lot of things can happen. That was fun, man. And so I am grateful to this movie for having having improved my education. And it was fun doing some of the research just to try and learn something and figure it out. So check it out for yourselves. It is always fun too to know that so many other people have asked the same questions because it will I'll watch some of these movies and go, Wow, how stupid am I? Why don't I understand this? Am I that dumb? And then you Google it and you're like, Oh, there are major, major, numerous articles about it explaining it all. I'm like, right. okay, I'm not the only one. Yep. All right, let's move on to our ratings. So on a scale of one to five pork bellies, what do you give trading places? I'm going to give this three and a half pork bellies. I wish I could give it more because I, again, I do respect this film as a, not a cult classic. It is a classic 80s movie with some huge comedic stars and some great performances. But the film, as Bill Bant has said correctly, is not without its flaws, most notably the pointed uh, racial and gay slurs, followed by somewhat confusing financial plot background. But it's... One of those movies that you say the title out loud and almost everyone of a certain age says, oh, it's a great one. Love that movie. It's so funny. And it is. It's a fun, farcical comedy. It's a Christmas movie. You're supposed to watch it and enjoy the silliness. And it's a young Eddie Murphy at his finest. Dan Aykroyd plays a, a very funny. We didn't talk about Dan Aykroyd that much in this or his performance, but he does play a funny, crazed, confused, drunk, then cleans himself up. Thanks to Jamie Lee, who is a standout because of her warm caretaking performance, as well as, again, Denholm Elliott as Coleman was great in this. I'm glad I watched it, if anything else, for his subtle performance, but comedic all in the right places. The setup is great. The concept is great. The stars are great. You just sit back, watch them do their thing. The good guys win. I'm happy. I'm giving it three and a half pork bellies. Yeah, I think when I first initially watched it, I gave it three. And then once I did the research and figured out what the ending meant, I bumped it up a half because I'm like, okay, now that makes, <laughs> makes more sense to me. I can, I can enjoy this more. And like I said, the movie's not laugh out loud funny to me, but there's a lot of moments that just made me smile and really well cast. Now that I understand the story, it even makes it better, even though the general concept of them 
switching places makes sense. It was more of the how did they get back at the Dukes that always just kind of befuddled me. And I think the ending is a little bit over the top, even though it's supposed to hark back to the screwball classics of the 30s and 40s. And some of it does remind me of some of the old Three Stooges shorts that kind of fall into the genetics or environment that they did, which is kind of funny. And they always used to have horrible gorillas and gorilla suits too. So it, it did yeah. it did remind me a little bit of the Three Stooges too. But yeah, so I ended up doing a three and a half uh, pork bellies myself. Great. All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. If you have any comments, questions, or recipes to share, please email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. For a final episode of Season 3, we are heading to Nakatomi Plaza for a little Christmas party. We are discussing Die Hard, starring Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, and Bobby Padilla. Have an excellent week, everyone. Absolutely. Happy holidays, everyone. We thank you for your listenership and for continuing to support us. You know, it occurs to me that the best way you hurt rich people is by turning them into poor people. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>